We're going to talk about enjoyment in life. Maybe I ought to take a poll. How many enjoy life this morning? Amen. Well, good. Amen. We're going to hear about some folks that didn't, but we're going to find out how to enjoy life too. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. If a man beget an hundred children, and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity, and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? First thing we need to remember is that Solomon is looking at life under the sun. Life apart from the Lord. Life that is apart from God the Father. Life that is oblivious to the Holy Spirit. He's just living for the flesh. But I want you to notice, go back to chapter 4 and then we'll look here in chapter 6 for just a moment. Notice the attitude this produces. Chapter 4 verse 2, I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Chapter 4 verse 3, yea better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. And chapter 6 verse 3, I say that an untimely birth or to be stillborn is better than he, and that's talking about one who has no enjoyment of life. Solomon's looking at life just from the flesh. And you know what he says? He said, life stinks. <laughs> you know, life is miserable. There's no enjoyment. And you feel sorry for folks like that, but he's looking at it from that standpoint. Now let me start out by saying this. Nobody can make you happy. Okay? Nobody can make you happy. Happiness is a choice that we make within ourselves. Young people get married. And when they get married, they think, well, being married or having a spouse is going to make me happy. I got news for you. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way, and it is not your spouse's job to make you happy. I don't always make my wife happy. I figured she'd say amen when I said that. I don't always make my wife happy, but guess what? Uh, I don't know how to say that. Sometimes she doesn't agree with me or I don't agree with her. How about that? Is that sort of a, a little better way to say that? People think if I just had X amount of money, I'd be happy. If I could just get this job or I could get this raise or I could win or make or earn some way this money, I would be happy. But you know what? They end up finding themselves wanting more. 
or they lose what they got and they're right back where they started. Money can't make you happy. And then some people join a church expecting joining a church is going to make them happy. May I say this? It is not this church's job to make people happy. It is this church's job to make people holy to preach the gospel, to teach the word of God so that if people will align their lives by the word of God, then they will be what God wants them to be. But it's not our job to make people happy. And sometimes when people join a church and it doesn't make them happy, they just decide to go somewhere else or they quit going altogether. But nobody can make you happy. We probably all heard the comparison between optimists and pessimists. You know, an optimist sees the glass as half full and the pessimist sees it as half empty. The optimist looks at the gas gauge when it's on E and says there's still enough gas in the tank to get to the service station. And that's not an optimist. That's called being a pedestrian is what that's called. You know. You're going to end up walking. But the line is that everybody ought to be an optimist. But folks, that doesn't always work. Things are not always going to work out where we can look at things with seeing a glass half full. And probably many people are almost genetically determined to be pessimists in their lives. They grow up in that kind of an atmosphere. Sometimes life itself will turn you into a pessimist. You look at what Solomon says. And we're going to talk about, I think he's looking at his own life as he looks back here in this sixth chapter of Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to tell you, I like being around happy people. Amen. I enjoy being around happy positive people. We grew up in a happy home. Laughter and humor was a part of our home. Yes, there were times that there was sadness that came into the home, but for the most part, we had just a very happy home. And I don't enjoy being around people who are always negative, who are always finding fault. That gives me a problem. Amen. I know there are events that sometimes take happiness from you, but I tell you this, events can't take your joy from you. Amen. If you're a child of God, you have joy in your heart. Because you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. In fact, listen to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul wrote to this church at Philippi. He said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, the book of Philippians is a letter. And we're going to find this out on Sunday nights as we study it or Wednesday nights, whatever night we're studying it, we're going to find this out that the book of Philippians is a letter of joy. You look at chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. It's a letter of joy, and we have joy if we know Christ. Now, we're going to approach this message from this standpoint, and it is the viewpoint that true joy and true happiness comes from God. Now, at the end of chapter 5, here's what Solomon said. In fact, just look back at the end of chapter 5. He said in verse 20, well, let's go back to uh, verse 18. Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. And so the ability to enjoy life comes, I believe, from two sources. It comes from in ourself, within ourselves because even when God blesses us and gives us that ability to enjoy life, if we don't accept that and we don't act on that, we're not going to enjoy it. 
but it also comes from God and it comes from his blessings in our lives. Now, the first thing I want us to notice, and we're going to give three principles in this message. And the first one is this, without the joy and grace of God, even good things fail to satisfy. Without the grace and joy of God, even good things fail to satisfy. There are three measuring sticks of success in Hebrew life. And number one was wealth. And that's what Solomon talks about first of all. And you look at verse two here in chapter six, and God had given this man riches and wealth and honor so that he wanteth nothing for all his soul of all that he desireth. Here's a man who has it all. God has allowed him to have many, many things. Wealth talks, we know what riches are. Wealth, some people say, talks about possessions. Other just say it's the ability to accumulate possessions. Either way, it's getting more. Honor is not God's honor. It's talking about the honor of the world because of a man's possession and because of his possessions. And so God has allowed him to have these things. But do you notice something that's missing in verse 2 that this man does not have? Grace. God's grace. God's allowed him to have riches. God's allowed him to have wealth. God's allowed him to have honor. But he does not have God's grace because how Solomon speaking, he's talking about life under the sun. He's talking about life without God. He's talking about life without the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 7, we'll get to verse 7 in a moment, but I want to point this out. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite's not filled. In other words, he can work and work and work, and he's never going to be satisfied without that grace of God in his life. Here's a man that's apart from God. He's apart from the grace of God. He's trying to enjoy the things that God has allowed him to gain, but he's unable to enjoy his wealth and his circumstances. Nothing can come up to his expectations. I like what Matthew Henry said about that. He said, where divine blessing is not upon a man's fullness, it does not matter what the surrounding circumstances are, for there can be no enjoyment of any. If you don't have God's blessings on what you have, if you don't have God's blessings on what you're doing, there really can be no enjoyment on these things. Here's what he has. He has goods without grace. He has wealth without wisdom. He has prosperity without true pleasure. So first of all, wealth. And this man has it. Here's the second thing that was a marker of success in Hebrew life. Lots of children. Lots of children. You know, Solomon had many children, but how many of them are named? We only hear about Rehoboam, don't we? But Solomon had many children. He said lots of children. If a man beget an hundred children. I tell you what, two's enough, isn't it? <laughs> Amen. If a man beget a hundred children. See, in that day, unlike for so many today, children were considered a blessing. Children were considered a gift from God. Listen to Psalm 127, beginning in verse 3. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. See, it's in his children that a man has the prospect of having his name built up. It's in his children that a man has the prospect of having immortality in this world. And so the Hebrews wanted lots of children. There weren't many children, and children were a blessing. 
But he says this, even with this blessing, even if he had a hundred children and his soul's not satisfied. What does it mean his soul's not satisfied? Well, listen to what he says. And his soul be not filled with good. What's soul talking about here? It's not talk, somebody asked me this week the difference between soul and spirit. Well, the spirit is that part of us that lives into eternity. Many times this word soul refers to the entire makeup of the individual, mind, body, and spirit. And it's talking about his life. I'll give you an example of that. Jesus talked about if a man gained the whole world and lose his own soul, what's he advantaged? And he's talking about his life lived for Christ. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But here's a man whose hands are filled with riches. He has many children. His barns are full, but his soul's empty. His life's empty. You can have all of these things. You have money and you can have children and you can have an empty life. Remember the rich fool that Jesus taught about in the book of Luke? Here's a man who brought in his harvest and he said, man, I don't know what to do. I've had such a good harvest. My barns are full. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down these barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to fill those barns up and then I'm going to say to myself, just sit back and relax, eat, drink, and enjoy life because everything's fine do you know what Jesus said about a man like that? This is verse 21 of Luke chapter 12. He called him a fool. God called him a fool. And Jesus said, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Our worst diseases are those that arise from the corruption that's in our own hearts, folks. And here's a man who has everything and he has children, many children. He's still not satisfied. And then he adds this in, in these verses. He said he does not have a decent burial. He doesn't have a decent burial. Now, why didn't this man have a decent burial? Well, there's one of several reasons. Number one, he could just be such a miser that he didn't want to pay for a fashionable burial. And he said, just put me away however you want to put me away. Another thought is that those who had, go back to verse 2, and those strangers that had eaten up everything, they had taken so much from him and he'd lost so much money that he couldn't afford a decent burial. But here's the sad part, and here's the third one, and this may be because he has many children, those to whom he's going to leave everything, leave his estate, have so little esteem for his memory. His own children, so little esteem for his memory that they say, we're not going to be chargeable for a decent burial. What good is it to have a hundred children when you're given no respect and when you're not even given a decent burial? And so here's a man who has wealth. Here's a man who has many children. And then the third thing that was considered a sign of success in Hebrew life was a long life. And here's what Solomon says about that. He lives many years. You look down to verse six. He says, though he lived a thousand years, twice told. Now that's twice as long, over twice as long as Methuselah lived. What, 969 years for Methuselah? Here Solomon saying, if a man were to live 2,000 years and saw no good, had no enjoyment in his life, he says an untimely birth would be better than that. What's an untimely birth? It means to be stillborn. But he says this, but the stillborn child and the elderly person end up in the same place, don't they? What's waiting at the end of our lives? the burial, the grave. And so Solomon is looking at life from this very negative standpoint. We see how negative viewing life under the sun can be. And as important as these three things were to the Hebrews, wealth, lots of children, a long life, as important as they were, they could not bring satisfaction. They could not bring 
enjoyment in life. And I said a moment ago, Solomon seems to be recounting his own life, doesn't he? He's, he's coming to the end of his life, and I see him just looking back. And he thinks about what God had given him. He asked for wisdom, and God gave him not only wisdom, but God gave him wealth and gave him riches. God gave him children, and God had allowed him to live. And as he looks back with this limitless supply of money and no sense of accountability to anybody else because he was the king, he took it as far as he could take it. And he comes to this point in life, and he says, man, what's it been worth? There's been no real enjoyment. He says, what a futile and what an empty life, living life under the sun. Now, whether you enjoy life or not depends on, I think, at least three things. Number one, whether you enjoy life or not depends, first of all, upon your relationship with God. Amen. I don't see how anybody who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, realizing that what comes at the end of life, that there is an eternity, and there is a heaven, there is a hell, there's a God to whom we must account. I cannot see how anybody who, knowing those things and does not know Christ as Savior, can really say, well, I'm just going to enjoy life. And so we need, first of all, to experience the grace of God in salvation. But also, I believe our fellowship with God is important to having an enjoyment of life, to having joy in life. How do you have fellowship with God? Well, you obey Him. You do what His Word says. You live for him. You faithfully serve him. You walk daily with the Lord. That's how to have fellowship with God. And when you're having fellowship with God, then you can truly enjoy life. Even when difficulties come. I said at the outset, you know, happiness may come and happiness may go. Sometimes we decide if we're going to be happy. I had a preacher one time preaching a revival service. First church I pastored said this one time. He said, do you realize... You can't make me angry unless I want to get angry. And that's true. And no matter how much you try to make me happy, guess what? If I don't want to be happy, I'm not going to be happy. It is a decision that we make. It is a choice that we make. So have the joy of the Lord. And though the world may try to take your happiness, you still have joy. Faithfully serve Him. And then the third thing is a daily walk with God, and that involves the things that we think about. Remember what Philippians 4, 8 says, whatsoever things are good, honest, just, all of those things. Those are the things we fill our minds with. We can fill our minds with what's going on in this world, the trouble and trials of this world, and wonder how it's all going to end, and we can just live our lives lower than low. Now, folks, we need to fill ourselves, our minds, with the things of God. Years ago, Time Magazine ran an article about the people who were happiest in their jobs. And you know who's happiest in their jobs? Pastors. Even with all of the stress, even with all of the anxiety that exists in pastoring, the people who were happiest in what they did were pastors. You understand why? Because they're serving God in their jobs on a daily basis. So without the grace and the joy of God, we really can't have enjoyment in our life, but here's verses 7 through 12. The grace and joy of the Lord will help us face the limitations of our lives. The limitations of our lives. What are you talking about? Well, first of all, look at verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. That word appetite here has the idea of desire. All of the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet his desire is not filled. Desire is insatiable. 
You can't satisfy desire. You satisfy one desire, what's going to happen? There'll be another one. You know? uh, well, I've got this done. Now I want to do this. Or I, I filled this. Now I want this. Mankind is always striving for enjoyment, but he never fully gains enjoyment. We're enjoying life as children of God, and we can enjoy life. But mankind always strives for enjoyment. It's never completely gained. Here's an example. By the way, I decided I'm going to have to give a disclaimer before I use this example. Because I know there are people here who are trying to buy new vehicles or they've bought new vehicles. They're trying to buy maybe a house or they've bought a house. They're trying to buy maybe a boat or have... So I'm not talking about any of you. Okay, this is just an example. Have you ever driven by a car dealership and I've gone over some of the flyovers and there's one especially you can look down on this car dealership and I look down and say how in the world are they ever going to sell all of those bright shiny new cars but you know what they do don't they now here's what happens sometimes and I'm judging based on me not on anybody else I've got a car it runs fine but the new models have come out oh there's some gadgets on these new models and it's a lot shinier than my old dirty car. And so, you know what? I think I'll just get a new car. And so we satisfy that desire. Or maybe it's a bass boat. I don't know why a bass boat, but that's what came to mind. And so here's a, this one has a better fish finder on it and it has a bigger motor on it and I can go further, I can do more in this. And so even though what I have is sufficient, I want to trade up. The desire is never fully filled. We have a fine house. I'm thankful for the house we live in. But you know what we started doing when interest rates dropped? You know, there's things called Realtor.com and Zillow and all of these things. And you go in and you start looking for a house, even though God supplied you with one. It's called desire. And desire is insatiable. And so Solomon just said, here's the first limitation. You're never going to fill up your appetite. You're never going to fulfill your desire. Here's the second limitation. Because remember, it's the grace and joy of the Lord that will help us face these. Social acceptance does not guarantee the true enjoyment of life. Amen. Now, we've raised two teenagers, so I know a little bit about this. You know, <laughs> Anybody that's raised a teenager knows about this. Because especially teens think, I've got to be socially acceptable. I've got to be accepted by my peers. And then life will be wonderful. And it doesn't always work that way. And Solomon takes two extremes on this scale. He talks, first of all, about the rich wise man, and then he talks about the prudent poor man. Now, who would we deem to be more socially acceptable? But what is true of these, because they're the extremes, is true of every one of us that falls in between the extremes of being extremely rich and extremely poor. And here's what he says. They both labor for acceptance. They both desire acceptance and then they have the same unsatisfied desires as they labor and for and desire acceptance. So who's superior? The rich man or the poor man? There is no superiority because they're both having unfulfilled desires. It's just that the rich man's desires on a little higher plane. The poor man may, may be desiring food while the rich man may be desiring a bigger mansion or whatever it may be. Now, when he talked about somebody knowing to walk before the living, that's understood this way. Here's a poor man 
And he says, if a poor man knows how to walk, knows how to conduct himself in front of other people. You know, he gets in a situation, I guess sometimes poor people weren't assumed to be able to conduct themselves properly. But here's a man, though he's poor, he knows how when he gets in a social situation to conduct himself and, and to just act like one of the crowd and be acceptable in that sense. He behaves properly in his interaction with others. He can go through the world just as comfortably as a rich man could in dealing with other people. See, being content with what God gives us and being content with food and raiment, even a poor man can be as wealthy as a rich man and he conduct himself before others. And then here's the third thing he mentions. Verse 9. He says this, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. What's he talking about? Well, just this. Longing for more does not bring satisfaction. Amen. Wanting more does not bring satisfaction. The sight of the eyes refers to that which, is, which we have presently, that which we hold in our hand. And he says that's better than the wandering of the desire. Now, we would say it this way today. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? It's better to have something for certain than to wander and, and try to gain something else that we can't even get a hold of. It's better to enjoy the little that you have than to dream about that which you'll never get. Be satisfied, be happy with what God has given you. See, as we saw, and here's the problem, and we saw it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, God has put eternity in the heart of every man. God has put in the heart of every man this thing of eternity, and so we are not capable of being satisfied, wholly, completely satisfied with the wealth of the world, with the riches of this world. And so it creates a problem. As we indulge our appetites, and those appetites are filled, you know what it does? It creates another appetite. You know what appetizers are? I tell you what, I get up in the mornings, and I just eat a little snack, and drink my coffee, before noon, I'm starving. My stomach thinks my throat's been cut. You know, it's just, I'm so hungry. But if I'll get up and not sort of whet that appetite and go on to noon, I can do fine. And so when you feel an appetite, just like using an appetizer, it creates another appetite. And that's what he's saying here, and that's what we have in our hearts. George Bernard Shaw said this, there's two tragedies in life. You know what those two tragedies are? One is not to get your heart's desire. The other one is to get it. Okay? Sometimes God may give us what we pray for, what we want, what we think we have to have, and guess what will happen? Sometimes we'll find out, I didn't want that after all. Why did I pray for it? Why did I ask God for it? So, if it's not possible to control the human appetite, what's the answer? What do we do? Well, it's found implicitly and explicitly in the book of Psalms. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 4. I think we've shared this verse already in this series from Ecclesiastes, but it says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. If God is our delight, this doesn't mean, oh, I'll just delight myself in the Lord and he'll give me that new car, that million dollars, that new house, whatever. That's not what it means. If I will delight myself in the Lord, if he is my delight, God will fulfill that delight. 
God will give you everything you need to fulfill that delight if you would just delight yourself in him. When we pursue God rather than pursuing wealth, rather than pursuing a long life, God will put in our hearts and fill that desire that we have to serve him, to be right with him. And so that brings us to verses 10, 11, and 12. The grace and the joy of the Lord will teach us to depend upon him for the enjoyment of life. The grace and the joy of the Lord will teach us to depend upon him for this enjoyment of life. Our outlook should be that of the psalmist Asaph in the 73rd Psalm, verse 25. Listen to what Asaph said. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Isn't that beautiful? Asaph said, who do I have beside God? I mean, what desire should I have but to please God? And when we have that desire, when we want to put him first, then we'll stop living life under the sun and we'll start living life above the sun. We'll stop living life for things and for this world and we'll start living our lives for God. Now, verses 10 through 12 may seem a little bit difficult to understand, but we're going to do our best to understand them. I think there's no mistaking the overall message, and that is this. We must trust in God's sovereignty. God knows what is best. I can't fulfill all of the appetites of my life. This flesh desires some things that can never be fulfilled, but God can give me what I need. Not always what I want, but what I need. And in verse 10, the first thing he asks and what stands out in this 10th verse is, who is mankind to argue with God? Lord, you didn't give me what I wanted. Why? And we want to fuss at God sometimes. Well, who are you? Who am I to argue with God? Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. I shared this with the Sunday school class this morning. Nay, but old man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? It's the same principle that Job understood in Job chapter 1 verse 21. You know, his wife encouraged him to curse God and die. You remember that when Job lost everything? His wife just said, well, just curse God and die. And Job says, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And the scripture says in chapter 2 verse 10, in all of that, Job did not sin with his lips. Who am I to question God? Who am I to tell God he didn't do right by me? He's the potter. I'm the clay. He's the one who created the vessel. I mentioned in the Sunday school class, dad was an electrician. And there have been times I was working with him and boy, I'm ready to go. And he'll done a run of pipe and he'll step back and look at it. And then he'd go and start taking it down. And that just, I won't say aggravate me because <laughs> I was ready. You know why? Because he looked at it and he saw something he didn't like. He said, it's not right. And I want it to be right. And so he would make it right. And that's the power that God has over us, folks. He has the power to make it right or to deal with us in a way to make it right. Since lack of enjoyment comes from seeking pleasure apart from God, it makes sense that one of the keys to satisfying our souls is to trust God's sovereignty. Do what he says. Accept how he deals with us. That means... Trusting everything he allows, the pleasant and the painful, 
the good and the difficult. Because you know what he's doing? He's growing us. Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. He's using things in our life for his glory and for our spiritual good. So first of all, who's mankind to argue with God? Verse 11, since pursuing fleshly desires is merely chasing the wind, what profit is it to us to pursue earthly desires? Now this is that verse I referred to a moment ago in Matthew 16. Jesus asked, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That word soul again talks about life. You know what he's asking? What's more valuable than a life lived for Christ? But in another way, he might be asking, what are you willing? And I've shared this thought with you before. What are you willing to sell out for? What would the world have to give you? What would Satan have to offer you to get you to quit serving God? What's your price? Because that's what Jesus is asking right here. What will a man give in exchange for his life lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. You think God wants us to enjoy life? I know he does. He wants us to enjoy life on his terms, not on life under the sun. When he says something about not trusting in uncertain riches, he's talking about the uncertainty of riches. Do you know how uncertain riches are? Just a couple of years ago, I don't know why this comes up except that we drove by a gas station today. Just over a year ago, we were paying just over a dollar for gasoline. Today, it's over $3. What has happened? Well, that means that your riches are not worth as much as they were a couple of years ago. Amen. That dollar doesn't go as far. What has happened? Whether by politics or economy or whatever, it has devalued your riches are uncertain. And then he says, going back to verse 6, knowing that everybody goes to one place, knowing that we all go to the cemetery and that's where we end up, how are we better off trusting worldly wealth over trusting God's wealth, over depending upon the Lord? God provides everything that we need for the satisfaction of our souls. We need to trust Him. And then verse 12, we need to let God determine our desires. Instead of letting the flesh determine our desires, we need to let God determine our desires because you look at that verse and he asks some questions here. He says, first of all, for who knoweth what is good for man in this life? Oh, I know what's good for me. Oh, do you really? I'd much rather have ice cream and cake than spinach and broccoli and vegetables and all of those things. I know what's good for me, right? No, we don't really know what is good for us. God knows what is good for us. He created us. He knows what's good for us. But these questions answer themselves because look at the second question. Who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Because we're given to vanity, we don't know what's good for us. We don't really know what is best for us. And what he says is when we make these conclusions about what's best for me and what's best for my, you know, it's my life, Right? We know what's best for me and for my life. You know what we're doing? We're grasping the wind. We're trying to grab a hold of the wind. That's what he's saying when we just make our decisions based solely upon the flesh. But God is omniscient. 
That means God knows everything. And God knows, by the way, before I make this statement, let me just ask this question. Can anybody tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? Okay, I didn't think so. But God knows. God knows what you and I are going to face tomorrow. That's how great His omniscience is. And He knows what it will bring. James chapter 4, verse 14. We're familiar with this verse. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We may wake up tomorrow morning and have a wonderful day. We may wake up tomorrow morning to a tragedy. We may wake up tomorrow morning to difficulty or to ease or whatever it may be. We don't know, but God knows. And then God reminds us of this. You're not going to live forever. Life is there and it's gone. It's just a vapor that appears. And so, and here's what he says in verse 15 of that fourth chapter of James, we must base our desires on God's will for that you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. It's okay to make plans. But when we make our plans, we should always make our plans with a contingency, if the Lord wills. I have an idea of what I have planned for tomorrow. God could intervene. God could change my plans completely. I've shared with you before, it only takes one phone call for a pastor's plans to change. And those plans could change immensely and change immediately. But we ought to say, if this is what God wants, this is what we're going to do. Solomon has shown us that both wealth, and James talks about this, by the way, that both wealth and poverty can take us away from God. Some people can stand anything except to be wealthy. And some people can stand anything except to be poor. Either extreme would take them away from the Lord, but both wealthy and poor have difficulty reigning in their desires, controlling that flesh under the sun. And instead of seeking enjoyment and pleasure in life under the sun, we should remember that there is life above the sun. Especially those of us who know Christ the Savior. There is life above the sun and we need to acknowledge that whatever I have is from the hand of God. And I need to use it in the service of God. I need to give it to God. And so our prayer should be like Jacob, or Agar rather, the son of Jacob, in Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 8 and 9. Listen to what he prayed. Such a wonderful prayer. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. That's what I need, right? Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. You know what he's saying? Lord, give me what I need. Don't give me more than I need. Don't give me less than I need. Lord, I'm going to be satisfied if you would just give me the things that I need. So I have this question this morning as we get ready to close. Is your soul satisfied this morning? Are you satisfied in the Lord? Where are we seeking enjoyment and satisfaction in our lives today? We live in a material world. And we live in a world that says the more you have, the more important you are, the better off you are, the more esteem we will give you if you just have so much. 
And so what happens is people, and even God's people, end up spending their time and their energy pursuing things that are material and things that will not bless and benefit and will not help us grow as children of God. Or are you following God this morning? And are you saying to God, your will, Lord. I love that prayer of Agur. Just give me, Lord, convenient food, necessary food, the things that I need to live and to serve you day in and day out. That's all I need, and that's all I want.